The readings tonight are from 1 Kings, chapter 8, and we're reading several different verses through 1 Kings, chapter 8, which is on page 345 of our church Bibles. And we're starting at 1 Kings, chapter 8, verse 22. And it's Solomon's prayer of dedication. So 1 Kings 8, 22 to 24. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hand towards heaven and said, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continually, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it, as it is today. So then 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41 to 43. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when they come and pray towards this temple, Then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. And 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 59. And may these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. And may your hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God, to live by his decrees and obey his commands, as at this time. Thank you, Anna, and good evening again. Let's pray together, and please keep that passage open, if you could, so that we can look at it together. Father, thank you for your word. And we ask now for the help of your Holy Spirit to not just understand it, but to see how it speaks to us and can really challenge us today, this evening. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the great day had come. Uh, They had waited for it for a long time. It had taken seven years to build it, but now it was complete and Solomon's temple was there, splendid 
reality that must now be dedicated to the Lord. And that's what this chapter is all about. I recommend that you read it sometime for the whole of it. Obviously, we couldn't read it all this evening or it would have taken too long. And 1 Kings 8 also records the celebrations that happened with the arrival of the Ark of the Covenant and then Solomon's great prayer of dedication and his exhortation to the people. And in many ways, this this event that's described here was the climax of the reign of David and Solomon. Because, as you probably know, David had wanted to build a temple for God, and God said, no, you won't, but your son will. So David provided the means, and Solomon built it. This would be the place that would replace the tabernacle, that old tent in the wilderness that had eventually ended up in Shiloh and seems to have temporarily got lost. It would also be the place that would be the symbol of the presence of the living God in the midst of his people. That's what it was supposed to be for. It was the place where they would come before him in worship and in prayer. It would be the place of the cleansing and atoning work of sacrifices that the priests would be doing every day at the altar there that Solomon was standing in front of. This was the building that would generate a whole outflow of theology and praise and thanksgiving and worship that we now have in our book of Psalms. And this would be the place above all, which would be the unique place of the faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel. It would be his name that would be borne by this place. In a sense, here is God's address on earth at that particular point of history. This was where his name badge, his label would be there on this building. And so what would Solomon's prayer be all about? As he, uh, what does he say on this momentous occasion of the dedication of the temple there back in 1 Kings 8? And what I want us to see for a few minutes as, as we just meditate in some of these words is some remarkably mission-related truths. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that Solomon was a missionary. Um, He had, I think, too many wives for that. I don't think any mission board would have accepted him as a missionary. No, my point is not that Solomon was a missionary, but that his prayer expresses some of the great truths, some of the great biblical truths that underpin any sense of our mission or of God's mission in the world, such as the spread of God's name to the ends of the earth, which you may have even noticed as Anna read that. And I want to make three points as we go through this evening. The first is that what Solomon reminds us of here in his prayer is that God is the God who keeps his promises. Now, I mentioned that this morning, and I make no apology for repeating it this evening because I think it is so important. Solomon begins by focusing on how God had kept his promise, specifically the one to his father, David. Do you see there in verses 22 to 26 where where Anna began her reading? You, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven and earth. You keep your covenant of love, your promise. Everything you promised has been kept. And because God is the God who keeps his promise, Solomon makes that almost a defining thing about the uniqueness of this God. There's no God like you, he says, in heaven above or on earth below. You keep your covenant of love. That's who you are. You are the promise-keeping God. In fact, Solomon here is echoing words of Deuteronomy where God had said to the Israelites, you were shown these things, that is the great exodus out of Egypt and Mount Sinai, you were shown these things so that you might know that no other nation does at this moment, that you might know that the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below and there is no other. 
And so here is Solomon saying, that's how we know that you are the unique God of the universe, God. Why? Because you always keep your promises. You are the God who keeps your covenant love for your people. Now, supposing we'd been there, right? Uh, And after the great sort of bun fight that happens afterwards, all the sort of, it's almost like a great barbecue that goes on for a while. And we'd been able, like a sort of reporter, you know, to sidle up to Solomon. They said, I was really interested in the way you began your prayer, Solomon, talking about the uniqueness of this God of Israel and how he keeps his promise. Could you tell me a bit more about that? What do you mean? And of course, he would take us back to the promise that God had made to his father, David. But probably, if we pushed him, he would have said, yeah, but actually, that's just typical of God. Because that's what he's been doing all the way through our history. He's the God who made this great promise to Abraham. And then he kept that promise all through our history, right up to now, right up to this point. This is the God who keeps his promise. And, you know, as I was saying this morning, that Old Testament covenant promise of God is the foundation Not only of biblical mission, it's also, in a sense, the very heartbeat of the biblical gospel. Now, you might say, I didn't see much of the gospel in this chapter. Where's the gospel? Well, if we talk about the promises that God made, especially the promise God made to Abraham, that's what Paul calls the gospel in Galatians chapter 3. Do you remember this morning that I said, if you were here, that the bottom line of God's promise to Abraham was that not only would he make him a great nation, not only would he bless him and give him the land and so on, but that through him, through Abraham and his people, all the nations on the earth would be blessed. And Paul says, Galatians 3, verse 7, understand then that those who have faith, that means faith in Jesus Christ, of course, are the children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, that's the foreign nations, by faith, and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham, all nations on earth will be blessed through you. So therefore, those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham. See, Paul says the gospel, gospel didn't begin in Matthew, the gospel began in Genesis, because the good news was that in a world going the way of Genesis 1 to 11, all the flood and the sin and Sodom and Gomorrah and all the evil that is there in the world, God says, you know what? I still want to bless the world. I still want to bless all the nations of the world. And I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. And Paul says, that's good news. That's the gospel. That's the very heartbeat of God. So that's God's mission agenda. And so that's why I was saying this morning, all our mission, all down through the centuries, has been God keeping his promise to Abraham all the way through. So when, for example, the Apostle Paul took the gospel and crossed into Europe and brought it to our continent, God was keeping his promise to Abraham. And even before he did that, probably Thomas had moved to the east. Well, certainly the Ethiopian eunuch had gone to the south and taken the gospel into Africa. Indian Christians believe, and there's fairly good evidence for it, that it was the Apostle Thomas who took the gospel to India, certainly before the end of the first century. And within a very short time, Christian missionaries were going off to the north and the east and taking the gospel into Afghanistan and right up into China. God was keeping his promise to Abraham. And when somebody witnessed to you and brought you to faith in Christ, God was keeping his promise to Abraham. Until the day will come, says John in Revelation 7, when there will be people of every tribe and nation and language on the whole planet who will be gathered before the throne of God to worship the Lamb of God. And I envisage God, as it were, 
turning to Abraham and saying, there you are, I kept my promise. I said it would be all nations on earth will be blessed. And you had a good laugh, you and Sarah, you both thought it was very funny, as it sort of probably was at the time. But I meant it, all nations will be blessed. That's God's agenda, that's God's mission. And God is still doing it. And God calls us into that mission. Now, of course, Solomon couldn't have seen all of that. He couldn't have imagined what God would do. But nevertheless, he prays this prayer. He makes this statement. God is the God who keeps his promise, and he will. And he continues to do so. And I think that should be an encouragement to us. I don't know whether you're facing a challenge at the moment, something you feel that God is asking you to do, some step of faith or obedience that might be there before you that leaves you feeling very uncertain, perhaps. Even a call by God to step out into some particular form of Christian work and ministry and mission, possibly even to join those who have gone overseas in Christian mission, although mission is much bigger than that. And whatever it is, trust God. If God is calling you, God is faithful and will keep his promise. You can trust him because he's been doing it all through human history, keeping that promise. God is faithful. He's the God who keeps his promises. Let's move on with Solomon in this prayer because uh, you'll see, um, and again, we, we didn't take too much time to read this, but what Solomon does is that he says, and let me just now read verses 27 to 30. If you've got it there in front of you, you can read it with me. 1 Kings 8, verse 27, Solomon recognizes that really this little temple that he's built is far too small for God. Verse 27, will God really dwell on the earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I've built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and hear his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer your servant is praying today. May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, this place of which you have said, my name will be there so that you hear the prayer that your servant is praying. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And then what he does, he goes on, he lists a whole number of possible situations where the Israelites might feel that they need to come to the temple to pray, or to pray towards the temple if they couldn't actually get there. For example, if there were disputes between them, or they'd been defeated in battle, or there was drought, or there was famine, or disease, or a siege, or something. And in each case, Solomon says, Lord, when your people come and pray to you in this temple, we know that you don't live here, but your name is here, and you're in heaven. So when you hear the prayers of your people in this temple, please hear their prayers. Wonderful. That's what he prays for as he dedicates the temple. But then look at verse 41. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, <laughs> what about him or them? And you might have expected, given what we sometimes think about the Old Testament, that the next line would be drive him out, keep them away from this clean and holy place. We don't want their kind in here. Wouldn't that make sense? But that's not what Solomon prays. Solomon prays this most amazing, open, compassionate prayer, which shows something of a breadth of vision, which is quite breathtaking. As for this foreigner who doesn't belong to your people, but has come from a distant land because of your name, because they will hear about your name, Lord, they will hear. And when they come and pray towards this temple, then will you hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you? It's an amazing prayer. I find it really still quite breathtaking. And I wonder, do you see the, 
the, the, the irony between the, the last line of verse 43, where he prays that this place is the place which bears your name. The name of God is the most particular place on earth at this moment, the navel of the earth. The name of God is in the temple. And yet what Solomon is praying is that all the peoples on earth may know your name. It's going from the ultimately particular one place in Jerusalem, the temple. But Solomon says, Lord, I want your name to be known to the ends of the earth. Here is the focal point of Israel, and yet he wants the nations to be blessed. This is pure Abraham, I would say. Now, what I want us to see in this little prayer of Solomon, as, as, as quickly as we can, are, are three things. First of all, I'd love us to look at the assumptions that Solomon makes here, the, the things he actually believes. And then we look at what he actually asks for, the content itself. And then finally, we look at the motivation. Why does he ask God to do this? First of all, look at the assumptions he made. He assumes that people of other lands will hear the reputation of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he assumes that these people who will hear about the God of Israel will be attracted, that they will want to come and worship this God for themselves and ask him things, to, to pray for him, to say their prayers in the temple, even if they've just come as tourists, you know, like the Queen of Sheba, the mother of all tourists, who just turns up, as it were, to gawp at the temple and the palace of Solomon and so on. So they come, they'll hear, they're attracted, and he assumes that the God of Israel not only can hear their prayer, but will want to hear their prayer and might even be persuaded to answer their prayer. And those are amazing assumptions when you think about it. And yet the Old Testament shows that it was happening. Jerusalem was a cosmopolitan city. We learned that there was almost a kind of university there. People were traveling in. There were diplomats there. There were tourists there like the Queen of Sheba. There were commercial and political people there and so on. And so when a psalm like Psalm 96 says, sing a new song among the nations, they didn't have to go to the nations to do that. The nations were already in Jerusalem. They were there. And some of these people were already attracted to Israel's God from outside Israel and came into blessing. We think, for example, of Ruth, who accompanied Naomi all the way back to Bethlehem, even though she was a widow and her mother-in-law was a widow, and she'd seen nothing of this God other than death and bereavement, and yet somehow she's attracted to want to know this God more. There's something attractive about the God of Israel. Or you think of Naaman, who a little bit more reluctantly gets healed and blessed. And then as you move on through into the New Testament, we find, we discover in the book of Acts, that there were Gentiles, that's non-Jewish people, who were what Luke calls God-fearers. Not God-botherers, like the sort of slang word. These were Gentiles who had come to see something attractive in the faith of Israel. And we people like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, uh, or the Roman centurion in the stories of Jesus and the gospel. And so all of this, in a sense, is an illustration about how the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, people hear, people want, people are attracted, people come to worship. And that question that that raises is, if this is what God is, if God does attract people to him, are we willing to be that attraction? Do we actually see part of our role as being those who enable others and encourage others and show others what this God is like, 
and then bring them to answer their prayers. Do you know, I sometimes have been asked the question, do you think God hears the prayers of unbelievers? And they usually mean people of other religions. Do do you think God hears the prayers of a Muslim? And I sometimes want to answer, you know, if God did not hear the prayers of unbelievers, none of us would be believers. Because we all cried out to God, as it were, from a position of being outside the faith. And God heard our prayer. And God wanted to bless us. God knows the heart and mind of every human being made in his image. And wants to draw them to himself. It's a bit like that uh, man in the gospel who says to Jesus, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. But my question is, have you ever thought that part of your mission... And part of the mission of this church is cosmetic. Now, I use that word in a proper sense. That is cosmetic, something that makes the gospel attractive, that actually adorns the gospel. Something that makes people want to find out a little bit more. That's what Solomon is assuming here in his prayer, that people will hear, they'll be attracted, and God will listen to their prayers. That word, I I take that word cosmetic or from actually from the Bible because that's the way Paul in Titus says that slaves can do. Uh, In Titus chapter 2, Paul is telling Titus how he must teach the believers and then he brings in all different categories of believers. He talks about uh, old men and young men, old women and young women and then he talks about slaves. Now these would have been Christian slaves who had become believers but were still working for non-Christian masters. In other words, they were Christian believers in a pagan workplace. And Paul says, make sure that you teach them to please their masters, not to talk back, not to steal from them, to show they can be fully trusted. In other words, to be good, diligent, trustworthy, hardworking men and women. And then he says, so that in every way they may make this teaching about God our Savior attractive. And the word he uses is cosmeo. It's a word from which we get cosmetic. Something that adorns, makes the gospel beautiful. And so here's a a non-Christian pagan Roman slave owner. And he says, you know this, this slave guy? He's not talking back to me anymore. I don't have to lock up the family silver because he's not stealing from me anymore. Uh, I don't have to worry about fights in the the courtyard because he's a peacemaker now. Uh, He keeps on talking about this Jesus. He keeps on talking about salvation. What's he on about? If this is his religion, I'd be very interested to know a bit more. The way he's living is making the Christian faith, the gospel, attractive, curious. You want to know more. That, it seems to me, is part of what Solomon is assuming here. But look at what he actually asks. We move from the assumption that Solomon makes what he believes God can hear and he will hear and people will be attracted to the actual request that he makes. And that's also very surprising. He prays that God will not only hear, but do whatever the foreigner asks. Now, here's something just to remember. At no time in the Old Testament that I've ever discovered, does God ever promise to the Israelites in quite so many words, simply to do whatever they ask. Now, we know, of course, that the Psalms are full of requests. People ask God all the time for things, and they presume that God answered their prayer. But God never simply says, whatever you ask, I'll do. When Jesus actually spoke that way to his disciples, there was something quite new about it uh, for that reason. And yet here in this verse, Solomon asks God long before Jesus 
But he asked for people who didn't even belong to the people of Israel. And he asked God to do for foreigners what God had not even specifically promised to do for Israel. Isn't that remarkable? And who knows what they're going to ask? I mean, who's going to be in charge of the question box? You know, you you don't know what people are going to ask. It's an utterly open-ended prayer. Lord, when he comes and he prays, just do what they ask. It's remarkable, isn't it? I wonder whether we are as open as that to the kind of prayers that people who are not Christians, who may not even know anything at all about their faith, but they long, they want some blessing, they want God to be there, they're somehow desperate for whatever they believe God to be, to do something for them. Are we willing, in a sense, to to be that flexible, to be that open, to say, Lord, please do what they want, because then they will come to know you and come to a deeper faith. Jesus answers prayers. There's a movement in the north of India, and I was just sharing this in, in the seminar earlier, where people are going to villages, Christian believers, who've only been believers themselves for a short time, and they're going out to villages around the north of India where people are very poor. Most of them are outcasts or very low-caste Hindus. They just meet them in their villages, and they say, you know, get to know them and talk with them, and, you know, what's happening in this world? Well, we've got these problems. The well is dried up, or our cattle are sick, or, you know, well, we'd love to pray for you. Can we pray for you? Yeah, please pray. Which God should we pray? Well, we pray to Jesus. Great, okay, if he's your God, pray to Jesus because they've got lots of gods. And so these, these young Christians, they're often very young, they pray to Jesus to do something. And hey, guess what? Jesus answers their prayers and does stuff in the village. And people come to faith. They begin to believe in Jesus. And then, of course, they teach them the stories and the gospel and everything else. You never know what people are going to ask when they come to ask God for something. It can be quite funny sometimes. I remember a day when I was uh, a curate in the church in Tunbridge and we had a prayer time after the communion service and people would come to the rail and ask for prayers for things, uh, sometimes for healing or for, you know, whatever it might be. And we would simply quietly pray for them there at the communion rail. And one little boy was there and I was going along and I came to him and I bent down and asked him, you know, what did he want me to pray for? And he said, please pray for my hamster. Uh, and I said, you know, well, what's wrong with your hamster? He's dead. <laughs> I thought, Lord, what do I pray here? You know, and of course, I didn't pray for the hamster to come back to life or anything like that. Uh, but I certainly prayed for him, and I prayed for God to comfort him and to help him, etc., etc. But you, you don't know what people are going to pray for, but you want God to get into their lives through their prayers. And I wonder whether that's something for us to to get hold of. As people come, people are seeking, people are needy. And surely one of the things that COVID has done in our society, it seems, is to throw so many people to be asking really deep questions about life and about death and about suffering and about all of that kind of thing. So that's what Solomon believes. That's what he prays for. That's the content. But look at the motivation. Why does Solomon pray this? Why should God answer Solomon's prayer? It's an interesting thing. In in some of the Psalms, you get the feeling that the psalmists want to sort of give God a little bit of help in answering their prayer, to suggest a reason or two why it might be in God's own advantage to answer the prayer. You know, in a few places in the psalms, they pray for God to deliver them from illness and from death because they say, well, you know, God, if I die, I'm going to go down to the dust and will the dust praise you? Not much. So, you know, if you want me to keep praising you, you'd better keep me alive, God. You know, uh, just for your own self-interest, you understand, you know, in case you think I'm being selfish or something. 
it's, it's interesting the way they want, in a sense, want to motivate God to answer their prayer. Well, that's what Solomon is doing here. Solomon proposes to God that if God will answer Solomon's prayer by answering the foreigner's prayers, then God's own reputation is going to spread even further. And he says, that's why people will have come to the temple, Lord. You see, they'll come because they want to know the God of Israel. So if you answer their prayer, what's going to happen next? He's going to go and tell his family. And they'll come, and they'll be praying here, and they will come to know the God of Israel. And before you know, Lord, your name is going to spread and spread to the ends of the earth. <laughs> it's marvelous, isn't it? Solomon seems to have been a great entrepreneur. You know, he, he spots this multiplication opportunity. If you really give good customer service, you're going to get more customers. So if you really answer the prayers of these foreigners, then your name is going to get known. It's a remarkable way of praying. And that's what he says in verse 43, isn't it? He actually says that reason. Do whatever the foreigner asks you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel today. I mean, is that a missionary prayer or what? You know, this is, this is a most remarkable expansiveness of vision. The scope of this vision, that all the ends of the earth would know the name of the God of Israel, is what he wants. And we know there's many other places in the Old Testament where that motivation of the glory of God being known to the ends of the earth, the earth being filled with the glory of God and the knowledge of the glory of God is what they long to see. And isn't this also the motivation of our mission today? Shouldn't this be what we are most concerned for? That the name of the Lord, and for us, of course, that means the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, God's own Son, that his name should be known to the ends of the earth. Isn't that what drives us? That he should be the one to whom people are bringing their prayers. That he should be the one who is answering their prayers and from whom they are receiving the blessings of answered prayer, and especially, of course, the blessing of forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. That's what we want to see, isn't it, for the ends of the earth, and indeed here in Hoven and Brighton. That is our motivation for mission. And that, therefore, has to drive all our attitudes and actions towards those who are as yet outsiders. But that challenges, doesn't it, even that concept of outsiders, you see, even sadly, back in Old Testament times, we know that the attitude of the Israelites didn't always match up to this, what Solomon is thinking of here. We know that probably books like the book of Ruth and the book of Jonah were written in part to combat the kind of attitude of exclusiveness and keeping people out and not wanting foreigners to be blessed by God, but to be judged by God as Jonah wanted on Nineveh. And the idea that God would be merciful to outsiders was somehow not so welcome in some quarters. As you know, even Jesus got into trouble for the same reason. When Jesus in that synagogue in Nazareth spoke about the coming of the Messiah, etc., everybody was happy, they blessed him. But when he said that God had shown mercy to Naaman, the Syrian, and to the widow of Zarephath, the Phoenician, even above the widows of Israel or the lepers in Israel, uh, then they weren't so keen to hear that, that God would be the lover of the foreigners. Because, of course, at that point, they were hating the very foreigners who were occupying their land. Outsiders? No, no, we don't want them. 
But Solomon says, no, when outsiders come, welcome them. Perhaps one way to help us do that is to remind ourselves that all of us once stood as outsiders who have been brought near and welcomed by God. Isn't that what Paul says in Ephesians? He says, you need to remember, you Gentiles, which is probably all of us, if not most of us in this building tonight, you need to remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. That's what you used to be, says Paul. But now, he says, in the Messiah, Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And having been brought near ourselves into the fellowship of Christ, surely therefore our arms need to be open to those who are as yet outsiders in every sense of that word. Outside the faith, outside the building, outside in the sense of being asylum seekers or refugees or migrants or the poor and the neglected. Whoever it is that are outside shouldn't be praying, Lord, we want them to be welcomed, to be brought in and that you would answer their prayers. So there we have two things. The God who keeps his promises and the, uh, the, the outsider who is seeking God's blessing. And thirdly, we come finally to the people who must keep God's commands. That's why I asked Anna to read those uh, last few verses of Solomon's uh, speeches and prayers in chapter 8. You can see it there from verse 59 down to verse 61. At this point, he's, 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 he's almost addressing the people, at least in his prayer. Because he says, yes, we know that this is what God wants. God wants, verse 60, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. That's what God wants. That's what, that's the whole mission of the church. But if that is to be the case, then may your hearts, and he's speaking to the people, be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees and obey his commands as it is this day. If you are God's people, says Solomon, then you must live in God's ways. The ironic tragedy, of course, is that Solomon himself failed to be an answer to his own prayer because we know that in his later life he went very badly astray into the ways of idolatry and oppression and everything else. But nevertheless, his prayer here is so significant because it combines, on the one hand, the mission vision of verse 60, that all the peoples of the earth should come to know the name of the Lord. Wonderful. But also combines that with the practical challenge of verse 61. That your hearts must be committed to the Lord your God and obey his commands. We must live in God's way. It's only as we reflect the character of God, the ways of God, the beauty of God, the truth and integrity and love and justice and compassion of God. It's only when those things are true of us that God himself becomes attractive to the world outside. Well, there it is. God will keep his promise. He's been doing that all through the centuries from long before Solomon. Outsiders will go on seeking God's blessing in all kinds of ways and confusion and everything else. They're doing it all around us even now. They're longing and looking for something which only God can give them. And the question is whether we might miss out on the excitement and the joy of sharing in the attractiveness of God in this 
missional magnetism that draws people to come to see what this God is truly like and what he could do for them through the Lord Jesus Christ. So let our hearts then be, as Solomon prays, as the word of God challenges us through these words of Solomon, let our hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God, to live by his standards, to obey his commands, so that people to the very ends of the earth may come to know the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to his name be honor and glory. Amen.